Well, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament. I started a new series last week entitled Love, Good News to Believe in Jesus for Eternal Life. And last week, I talked about the author, John. I talked about the Gospel of John, his writing, and I talked about the nature of the message of the Gospel as well being one of love, the one whom was known as the beloved or the disciple Jesus love, writing a message of love that we might know God's love and receive it personally. And so today we're going to dive right in, in uh, chapter one of John. We're going to look at this, that Jesus is the Christ. And John begins his gospel account simply by exalting Jesus. Uh, You'll find uh, that they call this often the Christological hymn or a Christological hymn. There are a couple in the New Testament. Another one is Paul's in Colossians 1.15 where he begins, he is the image of the invisible God. And in these hymns, the writer begins to just begin to reflect deeply and capture the insight of the being of Christ himself. And so everything John writes comes down to this one person, Jesus Christ, whom he will tell us today is preexistent, he is eternal, and now he has come as the incarnate word of God in the world. So John sets Jesus at the center of his gospel account from the very beginning. These first 18 verses will provide the center for our understanding of all else that we study in this book. One commentator says this about John's prologue. He summarizes how the word which was with God in the very beginning came into the sphere of time, of history, of tangibility. In other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and the grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. And the rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion of this theme. And so John begins his good news by revealing Jesus for us, that God has come to save us. And that's what I want to leave you with today, that Jesus is the Christ He is sent from God as the Savior of the world. You see, I think it's important for us to understand that who God had sent speaks volumes for what God intends in salvation. In other words, God didn't contract out the labor of salvation, but rather He came Himself. He sent His only begotten Son And that in and of itself tells us God's very purpose and intent in salvation was to have a relationship with us. And so what I want us to do today in the first 18 verses of John 1 is I want to look at four exaltations of the person of Jesus Christ that compel every person to believe in him for eternal life. Let's go to John chapter 1 and let's read together the first five verses as we begin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The first exaltation I want you to see that John makes of Jesus in this passage is simply this, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Every person should believe in Jesus because Jesus doesn't just come from God. He is God. And he begins his gospel in a familiar way to us from having read the scriptures. Not only is it familiar with the way Mark begins his passage or his uh, gospel account, but he resonates all the way back to the beginning of scripture in the book of Genesis. And he returns to the beginning of all things. So where Moses begins the Bible, in the beginning God created, in the beginning of time, if you will, John actually moves before that time into eternity past. And more than simply setting Jesus within a historical context, he sets Jesus as the context within which creation and history are set. So instead of saying that Moses' account of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, and then all of these things happened in human history, and Jesus came onto the scene, what John says to us is that Jesus was, and then he created. He gives us the eternal perspective for us to see all that is. And so he sets creation within the context of Jesus. John sets Jesus as the center. He is the origin of creation who becomes the incarnation of God. And that's where he begins. He distinguishes God in several ways in these first five verses. First of all, he uses that distinguishing word of logos, or he is the word as this title for Jesus. And he also parallels the Genesis account in this way, because as we know, it says, in the beginning, God created. And the way God created was how? And God said. Each time God created, he begins with, and God said, and we see that. Well, the saying of God in Genesis has become God's word in John. And so we see another parallel. Throughout the Old Testament, God is the one who speaks, and his word demonstrates his power to all people. The Old Testament also uses the concept or the theme of wisdom for the understanding of God's power, not only through which all things have come into being, but through which all things are held together and exist. And so God's powerful self-expression in creation, in revelation, and in salvation is represented by his power to act in his word. And that's what we see in John one, that Jesus is the Word. He is God come to earth in human form to act in power. Jesus' presence also demonstrates God's person. It says this, that Jesus was with God, so he was not identical to God because he couldn't be identical to God if if he was with God. There, in other words, there's two persons when someone is with another. Jesus is with God, but it tells us that he was God. So while he is not identical to the Father, he is equal to him. 
And what John begins to do is to introduce a foundation that we will see very explicitly unpacked and explained as we see it come to light. A foundation for what we would call the Trinitarian nature of God. That God is one God in three persons. And here in John 1, we have the introduction of the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, Jesus Christ, the Son. He shows that he is fully equal with God, but not identical to him in his personhood and in his role. But what he will show us as he introduces here to us is the intimacy of the relationship that these two share between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And that too is a critical foundation for all that Jesus does because he will later tell us that he only speaks and acts as the Father directs him to. He does not speak nor act upon his own doing, but only as the Father tells him. And so we know that in the person of Jesus, both the words and the teachings that he speaks and the work and the acts that he performs are all flowing through him through an intimate relationship that he shares with the Father out of a heart of obedience to him. And so Jesus reveals this living personification, if you will, of God's love that has come to us. Verse 3 goes on to tell us that Jesus is the origin of creation. Friends, not just that he is the crafter of creation, which he is, but more than that, he is the origin. It says all things originate in Jesus. He's the all-consuming center in which all things begin and with, with which and in which nothing that is would exist without him. Now, now listen to this play on words. Nothing is outside of or without Jesus. The word is denotes that present state of being. And so all that is, that has ever been or will ever be, is because Jesus is. You see, that present state of eternal being is the origin of all that has ever been, of all that currently, presently is, and all that will forever be. When we speak of is, we speak of a present state of being that is bookended by parameters of time. When Jesus speaks of is, because of his eternal nature, it has no ending and no beginning. It always was, it is, and it forevermore shall be. Paul echoes this in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 when he says, In him we live, we move, and we have our being. And so he uses this doctrine to show that among all other gods, Jesus is not like any other, but he is superior to all others. You see, Jesus has always been is because he is the great I am. And that's what John is teaching us here, that the God of all the ages past from recorded history that we have in the scriptures beginning with Genesis 1 all the way through the end of Malachi, Jesus is, even 
before the record begins. John presents Jesus, friends, verse 4 and 5 also, as the source of all of life. He came into the world to show and to give life by conquering the very thing that steals life. Jesus is more than physical creation. He is the origin and he is the source of new creation. You see, in him lies all the power of life. And not only life in this world as we understand it, but life in eternity eternal life. And he uses three familiar words and concepts to describe this, the word word, as we've already looked at, but also he uses light and life. These three words are concepts that are really good or represent good in any sphere of religion or worldview. In in other words, any of them would recognize that the general concept of Word spoken or light or life represent good. But what John is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate as all of these things. Incomparable to any other, not subservient to any other. As the word, he speaks when others are silent. We've seen that throughout the Old Testament. That God, when he is confronted with the false gods of the Old Testament, is the one that speaks while the others begged their gods and beat themselves wanting him to speak, but their false gods can say nothing. God is the one who speaks. He is the one who acts. And we see that in his life. He has the power to act when others only lead to death. You see, what we learn in the gospel is that God holds the keys not only to life but to death. He's not ruled by either. And so when he speaks of life, he's speaking of absolute dominion and sovereignty over life and over death. And he is the light. Verse 5 says, the light has shone into the darkness. And what has happened? The darkness has not overcome it. Anywhere Jesus shines, he is never overcome. By darkness. Friends, there is no comparison to Jesus. There's none that is above him. There's none that are beside him. He is God of creation and he is the good of creation. He is life and light in the world and he alone is redemption in this world. He comes, he says himself in chapter 10, verse 10, to give life and to give it to the full abundantly. And so the life that Jesus sources in us overflows through us because Jesus is God for us that comes to us to save us. That's the first exaltation that John makes about Jesus as he introduces us to who he is. The second exaltation he makes is in verses 6 through 8. Go there with me and let's read that. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Here's the second exaltation I want you to see that John makes about Jesus. That Jesus fulfills God's eternal promise. 
it might seem a little odd that in the middle of this uh, hymn that's exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden there are three verses kind of crammed in there about John the Baptist. But that plays a significant role. Here, it helps us understand why his ministry was so important. Because in terms of years, John the Baptist's ministry was little more than a blip on the screen. It came and he was gone. But in terms of impact and significance, he linked two epochs of history of humanity together that otherwise would have been left disconnected. And I want to show you that. You see, he, he introduces John the Baptist, not by using his qualifier, the Baptist, but we understand clearly who he's referring to. And this is important because the Messiah who was to come, who had been promised for ages past throughout the Old Testament, he is the one who will point to him as Jesus, the Christ, and identify him for God's people. In order for Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promise that is given to us throughout the Old Testament, he had to come as the prophets who spoke for God in ages past foretold. How many promises are there in Scripture that God has failed to fulfill? A little trivia. You don't like these big tests, do you? You know, I heard this week uh, leading up to the Arkansas Aggies game that uh, the Aggies were really in a big, um, they were in a big uproar because it seemed as though there was um, a student who was being unfairly quarantined and was going to be kicked out if he couldn't pass the test. And so word got out and the students began to rally in his support. And, and as they rallied, it just grew and grew until it took over the whole campus of Texas A&M this last week. As such that they brought it to a head and the chancellor had to say, okay, we're going to put him to a test before we kick him out. And if he can pass the test, we'll let him stay. But if he can't pass the test, we're going to have to remove him from the roll. And, and they planned and scheduled the test for Friday. And, and on Friday, test time came and the crowd had grew so big, they had to move it from the classroom to then to a lecture hall to ultimately they had to put him in the football stadium because there were so many people. And it is proposed that the entire campus of Texas A&M showed up for this student's test. And so they put him right down on the 50-yard line, right in the center of the football field to administer the test. And they said, here is the test. And you can only imagine how he was probably wringing his hands, seeing how his whole future hung in the balance. And they said, what is the answer to two plus two? The crowd fell silent. And the student stepped up to the mic and he said, four. And there was an eerie pause. And the whole crowd together said, give him another chance. <laughs> We're going to lose to him. I'm going to get back at him. <laughs> it's funny if you're from Arkansas because we've not liked Aggies all our lives. How many promises has God failed to forgive, to, uh, to fulfill? 
None. Not one. You see, friends, when you read the promises of God in Scripture, they are more sure than your presence in this room right now. There is no wavering with God. What He says, He does. His word will not return void. It will fulfill, it will accomplish to completion the purpose for which He sent it out. Jesus is the word. He will fulfill the promise that God has spoken. And the reason John the Baptist's ministry is so critical for us to understand is he is here to tell us Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise through all of the prophets from long ago. The fulfillment of God's spoken word through the prophets of old, completed by the ministry and the role of John the Baptist, unites the Testaments to reveal God's eternal promise in Jesus Christ. And John uses the testimony of John the Baptist to distinguish Jesus on earth. You see, the role of the Old Testament prophet was unique from the role of prophecy today. The Old Testament prophet was the mouthpiece of God. They spoke, thus saith the Lord. Their words were to be received directly as the words of God. Now, that's not the same as prophets today or prophecy today, but that is the distinct role that they used. And between the end of the Old Testament and, shall we say, the tradition of the Old Testament prophets and the beginning of the New Testament, there are roughly 400 years where there is no recorded prophecy from God. See, some of you are antsy about getting up and leaving after four seconds. Man, if you're not going to talk anymore, I'm out of here. 400 years. Generations passed. And all they had to cling to was the promise of God. And when John the Baptist comes on the stage... He connects two epochs of history to bring one to a close and to introduce the other. John, it says, speaking of John the Baptist, was sent from God. You know, he is the next to last that will be referenced as sent from God. Jesus will be the last. And then after Jesus comes, none other are sent by the Father. All are then sent by the Son. For all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. And he becomes the sender. John the Baptist was sent by God the Father. In the same tradition of the Old Testament prophets. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the other prophets who spoke for God. So he could speak for God, provide closure as God comes to speak for himself in the word, Jesus Christ. And so he came as a testimony and a witness to the light. This unique historical position of his ministry was to announce the arrival of the Messiah, the promise of God who was revealed in Jesus the Christ. He was the next to last, bridging two epochs. The, the first epoch was the law and the prophets. 
The second was God's kingdom. Yet while he lived in one and ushered in another, excuse me, while he closed one and ushered in another, he didn't truly live in either one. For when he introduced Jesus' ministry, his came to an end. And his ministry is distinguished by the characterizing quote in his submission to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. John serves as God's confirmation to identify that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise for a Messiah. You see, John the Baptist confirms that Jesus is God's Christ who has come to save us. And he and his ministry remind us that God never forgets or fails to fulfill his promise. Let's look at the third exaltation, verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The third exaltation I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is the only Savior who gives new birth. Jesus is the only Savior who gives new birth. John begins with verse 9 with the true light to distinguish Jesus from John the Baptist. Many wanted to make John the Baptist the Messiah. He had such a following and he spoke with such an authority and he lived in such a unique characteristic way that they wanted to enthrone him as the Messiah, but he would not allow them. But he did announce who would come as the true light to everyone. And then Jesus' coming was very distinct, even from his creation. You see, Jesus came into the world that he made, but it says that he was unrecognized by his creation as the true light. And yet no one saw him as the true light, except for John, who witnessed to him as the true light. And so this genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man was not known by man. These are critical indications for us, friends, in our relationship with God and understanding how it is that we come into relationship with God. Jesus came into creation as the incarnate creator to become the personal savior. And world is an important word for us to understand because it helps us understand how it is they missed Jesus when he came and how it is that you and I will miss him every day if we don't understand this. It refers to much more than just the creation in terms of nature and, you know, the, the Ozarks, the beauty of creation, if you will. World rather refers to the created order of human beings and their affairs that take place in rebellion against its maker. John is not simply referring to a beautiful place of God's creation, but rather a place with this word world that is ruled by sin and rebellion. And do you know what he said about Jesus in regards to this world? He came. Jesus knew perfectly well where he was coming, and he came anyway. He came anyway. 
This tells us, friends, of God's heart for people. Even when they reject him, for Jesus' own creation rejected him. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he came, and he knew why he was coming, but he came anyway. You see, Jesus didn't just come into creation. Rather, he pierced darkness and death to bring light and life. And that's what John wants us to understand with this distinct exaltation that he is making. In this world that rejected him, all who received Jesus, he made children of God. Do you see that Jesus is coming into the world? They did not recognize him. And when they were told who he was, they rejected him. But he says what? But to all who believed in him who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, God does love all people, but not all who are created are God's children. God's children are all who believed in his name, according to John. God's children are those who by faith believe in Jesus and are made new, are born again. And this new birth is an act of God that comes when we believe in Jesus. That's what he tells us in verse 9 through 13, that new birth does not come by human lineage. New birth does not come by genetics. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You're not a Christian even if they drug you to church every week. You're not a Christian because of something that was enacted upon you. You're not a Christian because of the rituals of religion that you keep. You're not a Christian because of the intellect that you've attained to and that you've uh, brought conviction or conclusion by. You're not a Christian, not only because of human lineage or genetics, but by position that you attain to in this world, by the accomplishments that you successfully fulfill in this world, by the achievements that you rise to. Listen, you're never made a Christian even by human will, by the human decision that you exert yourself into. None of these things make you a Christian God alone brings new birth when by faith we believe in Jesus to receive his new life. Friends, I I tell you, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to new life is not so much the intellectual conclusion of who Jesus is and even what he's done, but the demand of who we are not and what we cannot do without him. Human history shows over and over and over again that many people may attain to the theories and the facts of Jesus as a person, even as God in theory, but they cannot get over trusting that there's nothing they can do on their own to save themselves. It is by faith we receive an understanding of our own depraved nature that there is no reason about us, no inherent worth from us, and nothing in us that demand God save us. Why? Because each of us have sinned And fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. 
But Jesus came and loved you anyway. And he brings the only life that can overcome that death. And if you will believe, you will, will, see, you will see your own utter depravity to save yourself. And you will turn from yourself and you will believe in Jesus to receive what only he can give you. That's what John is telling us. Unless you believe in Jesus, you cannot be God's child. Jesus is the only Savior who gives new life. The fourth exaltation I want you to see is in verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The fourth exaltation I want you to see today is that Jesus reveals God's grace and truth for life. Finally, the distinguishing act that separates God from all others in worth of honor, in worth of glory, is this. He became flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What no eye had ever seen, we behold in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Christ. John the Baptist testified of his preeminence and here he exalts in the full glory. And how does he do that? But he says he is the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's grace and truth, the full glory made flesh that dwells among us. You see, in Jesus, we not only behold God's glory, but we receive his glory as well. Moses gave the law, which showed us God's glorious character, and it shows us our sin. But Jesus brings grace and truth. These are not set in opposition to one another, but rather in completing the revelation of God. This is God in his glorious character, and this is who we are in our sinful nature. But praise be to God, he is also full of grace and truth. And that's what we find in Jesus, grace upon grace, to span the chasm that the law uh, creates because of our sin and brings us from separation from God into relationship with God. Jesus makes God known. And what we know of God from Jesus is that he supplies a never-ending grace through an ever-loving Savior to a completely sinful people that we might live eternally with him. You see, God sends Jesus as the fullness of his glory that we might receive grace upon grace to overcome all of our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace Grace that is greater than all 
our sin. That's who Jesus is. He is the one that is greater than all of our sin. When Paul records that he prayed to God to remove this thorn from his flesh, probably the most significant influence in his life, whatever it was, that threatened to drive a wedge between him and God, God said this, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my power will be made supreme. What do you think grace upon grace means, friends? It's like the mounting, compounding reality of the glory and the goodness of God from which you will never be able to dig out of because it envelops all of you with increasing measure, intensity, and goodness in your life. That's what grace upon grace means. That for every depth by faith we see our sinfulness, God's grace overwhelms with his goodness and his salvation. That's who Jesus is. And that's who John presents to us. This is Jesus, the Christ of the living God. When you believe, he saves you from your sin to give you his eternal life. Jesus is the Christ sent from God as Savior of the world. Now, would you indulge me for just a moment? Fruit is good. And it is sweet. And let's say you wanted to have a fruit party at your house. Would you cover your table with fruit? Prepare a palatial spread. Gather all of your friends and acquaintances around and wax eloquently about its goodness for your life. You know, fruit helps fight macular degeneration. Yeah. You can go look that up just like I had to to understand what it meant. Fruit helps fight high blood pressure. Fruit has endless health benefits. But no one buys fruit thinking macular degeneration be no more. High blood pressure, take that. No, you buy fruit to break it open and to eat it, right? Am I right? Yes, and that's why the psalmist commends us taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus, friends, is not for you to keep at arm's length, but for you to take and to taste and see his goodness. Jesus will only be truly known when he is believed and received. I want to share with you a story as I close today. It's a story about a man I met this week named Kanchan Kana. He was an elderly man from Delhi, India, who moved here about nine months ago to live with his family. And as we got on our flight in Detroit, he was very concerned because we were going to be delayed about an hour or so. And they came on to tell us, and he grew very concerned, and, and he couldn't communicate, communicate in very broken English. He could read and he could speak, but his vocabulary was limited, and he couldn't understand hardly anything unless you really slowed down and, you know, did your hands like this. And then he could, you know, that always helps, right? But he grew anxious 
and, and was very concerned that he was going to miss his flight, which went from Chicago to Delhi. And so as the stewardess came and they were trying to explain to him, they were busy and they were trying to get weather updates as to whether we were going to be able to leave. So I just turned to him and said, is there anything I can do to help you? And, and, and I began to tell him, look, if, if this flight is delayed, many are probably delayed. And there's a good possibility that, that maybe you'll be able to catch your flight to Delhi when we get to Chicago. And so that quieted him for a moment. But then he said, you know, I need to call my daughter. And so he pulled out his cell phone, and his cell phone had no service for some reason. So I said, well, you're welcome to use mine if you're just calling, you know, here. I don't, don't call Delhi. Uh, I'm not sure what that would charge, right? And so he called his daughter and spoke to her. I couldn't tell you what it was. But then they told us, you're going to be on the tarmac for an hour or so, so get comfortable. As we began to talk, he he told me that he was a uh, retired CEO of a tech company uh, in India. And he had moved here to, to, to be with his family, his two daughters and their families that lived in Detroit. And then he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he, he didn't understand what a pastor was. And I said, well, basically I teach the Bible. And he said, oh, oh, yes, the Bible. He said, about 20 minutes from my home in Delhi, I used to walk to a Christian church and I would learn English. That's where I learned to speak English because they would teach English and they used the Bible to teach English. And I said, well, that's interesting. He said, oh, yes. He said, I'm very familiar with Christianity and with Jesus. And so he, he talked a little bit more about some of the things that he, he knew. And, and so I showed him one of these life books that I had out and was doing some reading. And I told him, well, the book that is in here, the Gospel of John, is actually the gospel or the book that I'm preaching through and teaching our people right now. Oh, really? And so I had the opportunity just to explain it. And he looked in it and he said, are these all of your notes that you've made? And I said, no, no, no. And so I showed him where it introduced him to the characters. And then I, I took him to part one where it introduced the narrative of the whole Bible. And then I said, but the key is this. When you get to John, the book of John, and I showed him where it began, understand that these are the words of God that are written to us. And all of these scribbles out in the sides are really just people reacting. I said, you probably have reacted to God's word before, haven't you? And he went, oh, yes. He said, I remember in learning to read and learning to speak English, there were oftentimes, there were things either I didn't understand or I thought, how in the world could that be? So that kind of curtailed our conversation for a moment. And then he turned and he asked me a question. He said, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. He said, what happens to Christians when you die? And I said, well, the Bible's very clear. It said our, our soul immediately goes to be with God. We're, we, we are there with Jesus. I said, and I took him to 1 Thessalonians where Paul talks about those who have already fallen asleep and those who are still awake, in other words, remaining on earth. When Jesus returns, we will meet them in the air. And, and so I just began to talk to him about that. And he seemed very pleased with that. He smiled at me and he turned away for just a minute. And then he turned back and he said, what happens to people who don't know Jesus, who aren't Christians? Now, if you understand what a Hindu believes, you understand that the afterlife is very important to them because of their belief. And so I explained to him that people who have not believed in Jesus and received new life go to a very horrible place of eternal damnation. And I said, the Bible describes this place of great torment, anguish, and suffering. And in that moment, he just winced and turned away from me. And it was silent for a few moments. 
And when he turned back to me, I said, you know, that's why Jesus came to die. And that's why the message of this book is so important for us. Because you don't have to live separated from God. You can receive the new life that he gives. And he said, yes, yes. He said, we all die. And I said, yes, we do all die. But the Bible teaches that sin is the reason that we die spiritually. And I took him to Romans 3. And by this time, I've got my iPad up. And it's in large text. And he's reading aloud. And there's at least eight or ten people on the airplane that can hear him. Because he's not whispering. You know? And I showed him how in Romans 3 it tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I said, so it's not just me or you or some people. I said, it's all people who live under sin. And that's why we are condemned to such a horrible place without Jesus. Because, and then I took him to Romans 6 and said, the wages of sin is death. And he read that and he paused and I said, but keep reading. Because the gift of God is eternal life. And so I began to talk to him about that. And he said, but what about people who've never heard about Jesus? How will they hear? And I said, well, that's why I'm sitting next to you today. And I went to Romans 10. And I said, you see, Jesus sends Christians to be faithful witnesses. To tell people who don't know about Jesus, about Jesus. So that they can believe in him and receive eternal life. And every time you would finish a statement like that, he would turn away in thought for just a moment. And I said, you know, Conchin, as you read John, these words here, I said, you need to understand that God wants to speak to you. And I said, so every time before you read, would you just pray, God, would you speak to me in your word? And I said, I'm going to pray that God will speak to you. And I'm going to pray that what you hear him say will cause you to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. Well, by this point in the conversation, we had taken off and we were pretty much done with the flight. But you know, the reason that I gave to Conchin in knowing Jesus and telling him, if you want to know Jesus, all you must do is believe and receive him. That is my prayer for him. I'll never see that man on earth again, most likely. But that's also my prayer for each of you. Is that you wouldn't just hear an intellectual treatise today, but that you would see an exalted Jesus. And that in him, you would hear from God. And that faith that comes from hearing the word of God would well up in you. That you might taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you believed in Jesus and received new life?